Hello, you're listening to the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. We're your hosts, Helen McLean and Jan McIntosh-Brown. Here, we aim to look at all aspects of brain injury, from the research to the rehabilitation, and always through the lens of speech and language therapy. Hi everyone, it's Helen here. I've just got a quick note before we get into the episode properly. In this episode, we are focusing on the um, subject of sexual capacity after brain injury. And so as such, there is some quite frank discussions about the topic and some language used that if you're in company of other people who have perhaps more sensitive ears, you might want to consider stopping listening to the episode at the moment and returning to it at a later date. Um, but hope that you enjoy it. It's been a really interesting conversation. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. I'm Jan McIntosh-Brown. And I'm Helen McLean. And tonight we're delighted to have our guest, Dr. Katrina McIntosh, um, who is a clinical neuropsychologist and also maybe known as the sex expert or as I named her, Dr. Love. And um, she's going to be talking with us tonight about sexual capacity. And I would like to say that I have worked with um, Kat and I did have the amazing opportunity to see Kat working with her team in one of our services um, on such a uh, issue to do with sexual capacity. So um, I've, I'm really looking forward to hearing her talking about it. So Kat, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I'm not sure how to pull off that introduction as uh, Dr. Love Jan. <laughs> but hi, everyone. My name's Katrina. I'm a neuropsychologist. I work specialised with people with brain injuries, and I have a special interest in capacity assessments. Um, so I, I guess my interest in uh, sexual areas is both supporting service users' sexual needs and in assessing and supporting people with sexual capacity as well. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly fascinating area which lends itself really well to teamwork and systemic working as well. So it's, it's really interesting work. Yeah, so maybe I can lead off Katrina by talking about, you know, the situation that I did observe. Um, and it's something that, you know, in an, because I work in inpatient rehab, Helen works more in the community. So um, it's maybe not so much something she has to think about. But, you know, I think the situation from memory that I observed was at your service where... Um, uh, a male person was observed coming out early morning from a female person's room um, and the the support staff were really concerned about all of this. Um, so, yeah, what, what are your thoughts about that situation? What sort of concerns were raised? And I think one of the first things that comes to mind is often people have quite an emotive reaction. Um, I think teams can understand and they'd be worried that uh, they might get it wrong or people might get in trouble if they don't support people adequately, both with their rights to access sexual needs, but also if they don't put adequate safeguards in that people will be worried. And this is something that family members can also get very emotive about. It, it can raise concerns. But often teams' understanding of the legal situation 
it doesn't quite mar with what they think it would be. Um, so people often think there might be lots of safeguards around this, but actually coming from the learning disability history where people were prevented to access sex, the legal benchmark's actually incredibly low and it's designed around people accessing and meeting their sexual needs as far as possible. So it goes the other extreme. Um, you basically need to understand the basics of the mechanics and that depends on the person's sexual orientation but it can be as basic as penis and vagina type thing um, you need to understand some of the basic risks a woman if it's a woman involved can get pregnant that contraception can prevent that and also STDs and again that can be prevented but you don't need to be able to apply any of that you don't need to be able to use contraception you might have a severe tremor and be unable to apply the condom that you claim you're going to use um, so there can be real um, it is very low benchmark um, there was a legal case where a judge decided that a person who thought that you could only get pregnant if married still had capacity for sexual intercourse. So it is a very basic understanding. The, the law has changed in the last few years. There's more emphasis now that you also need to understand that you need to consent and can change your mind and the other partner needs to consent and change your mind. So it's been a shift to from consenting to sex, um, which I think is the idea that our vulnerable people are passive and might get abused, to recognising that they're sexual beings in their own right, that they need to both consent and understand that their partner wants to consent. So it's shifted a little bit, um, but it's still a very low and it's deemed as the lowest of all the capacity assessments is the lowest level of understanding and also interestingly the legal um, judgments are that they put very little weighing uh, emphasis on the ability to weigh information the judges have said that most pe people or not all people sort of think through sexual decisions all the time and therefore you know just as someone might have a you know a night in the bar and go off with someone that they weren't planning to equally people with brain injuries or learning disabilities or dementia are also free to do the same so it's a bit of a, an interesting paradox given that in other areas of capacity certainly in brain injury there's been an emphasis towards things like the frontal lobe paradox behavioral evidence do people do what they say they're going to do in practice and weighing that that's not the case in sexual capacity. That's deemed as, as far less of an issue at all. And it's a very basic level. Can I just check? So that law, is that UK wide or does, is it, does it vary depending where you are in the country? It's Scotland's slightly different in its capacity law. Um, I'm afraid I'm not as familiar with the Scottish law. To my knowledge, it's very similar. Um, and I would imagine they're applying the same case law. But I can't tell you mm. for definite, I'm afraid. I'm not entirely sure on Scottish capacity. The main legal cases happen in England. Um, mm. uh, the most recent one of the main ones being JB. And that in the Supreme Court confirmed that that is the, the legal standpoint at the moment for sexual mm. capacity. Okay. So it seems like there's been... As you were saying, a real shift away from being restrictive to actually coming from a place to a place of facilitation, you know. So, yeah, yeah, because I think in other areas of of um, risk management and uh, capacity, it is about being the least restrictive. So, facilitation is actually the least restrictive. So, yeah, and actually, sometimes when. Um people have concerns around risk because I personally I find that often when family or staff are concerned it's not so much about the sexual act or sexual touching it's actually around things like pregnancy or abuse or taking advantage sometimes it's the, the wider issues and actually it can really help to think that capacity is decision specific so sexual capacity is literally consenting to sexual intercourse it is a very focused capacity assessment on a physical act. It's not about the wider issues. 
So sometimes the things that people are worried about might be a whole nother capacity assessment. And actually some of those might be capacity for contraception, capacity for alcohol, capacity for financial affairs, capacity for contact. So you can have a situation where someone can consent to sexual act, but actually not be able to judge whether the partner they select is appropriate or not and may not have capacity for contact. So they may need lots of help with dating, support, ensuring that there's no particular risk issues around a person and that the whole thing is entirely consensual, but in that environment, then be able to proceed and able to consent to physical act. And the benchmark for all those other decisions is much higher than the sexual benchmark. Mm. So hence someone might be assessed as having the ability to consent to sex, but not be able to manage the other areas. Um, so uh, again, uh, some of the people you've mentioned there, Jan, that we've worked with, they've had the ability to consent to a sexual act, but they didn't have capacity for their internet use, and they tended to meet men on the internet and were very vulnerable on the internet. So they needed lots of support around that because they couldn't judge that aspect of it yeah and I guess you know having having your your sexual needs met in a safe environment isn't it that's kind of choosing a partner who will you know support your your rights and your choices and you know I guess that is so much more challenging to establish and support someone with Absolutely. And, and there's a couple of points there that it's interesting that, again, the, the legal requirement is understanding risks. And it views those as physical risks, pregnancy, STDs, no mention of emotional risks. Mm-hmm. And actually, what might it be like, say, as a 30-year-old who's never had a, a sexual relationship and then something happens, it ends and they're devastated. You know, that emotional side that goes along with it, clients might need a lot of support with as well. But there's no requirement for them to be able to consider that. Um, But again, you mentioned that understanding relationships and people that support our wishes. Again, what can happen is sometimes um, systems around people, you know, our clients are often under their microscope, being every decision is being judged, where we ourselves maybe grew up making our own sexual choices. I'm sure for most people there were some unwise ones in there with the luxury of not being scrutinised. But some some of my cases, I have experienced times where other people have made judgments about the client's choices. And you might have a client that, say, wants an open relationship or you know an unusual relationship or one night stand so recently a female was uh, very much uh, getting some judgment for the fact that she wanted one night stands and that was her choice rather than her making non-capacitous unwise decisions um, so again what, what are the values sometimes that we bring to these situations um, again Sometimes our informants were very used to uh, in capacity assessments taking in the views of people that know people well, but there might be values in those reports. I mean, certainly when I unpicked that case and the mother was the main informant of the history, actually the mother said, "Well, it'd be fine if he took her out to a date once in a while and took her out for a meal. That would be okay." And I thought, well, "Hang on a minute. Why is it okay for this 21-year-old woman to have a relationship with the same man if he wants to date her, but not for her to have?" Um, a casual um, as as, the, as either of them wanted relationship. And this has been going on for a few years. You know, this was suiting both of them. Um, so, you know, hang on. You know, she's reporting all the time on the risk her daughter is at, and but she has got uh, a view, a way she's approaching that of her own value system of what she deems is appropriate 
or not for her daughter. Um, and we can get easily pulled into that of this report of risk and goodness and, you know, and just needing to sort of step back sometimes and, and untease that a little bit and think what how we might be reacting at our own systems because we bring our own values as well, our own history of relationships um, and how other people might be reacting. And I'm just thinking from a speech and language point of view, you know, if we're involved in any other kind of capacity assessment um, and we might use something like talking mats or any other, you know, kind of you know, communication aids, um, we try to be impartial and, um, you know, to be kind of that, that kind of advocate. Um, and it's just interesting if you were dealing with a case of someone who wanted to pursue some sort of sexual relationship but had a communication difficulty and you've got other people advocating for them, I, I guess you must ask yourself, you know, how much is the informant being kind of swayed by their own opinion and what they expect the, the individual to perhaps say? Um, and it's then, because as I was saying to you before we started recording, this isn't an area I know a lot about or have had much involvement in. But every time a conversation starts, I'm thinking there's more... That, that speech and language therapists could be doing and all of this um, and uh, yeah so I just think it's, it's interesting you because know, you're there as that third party impartial individual um, and it just makes me wonder you know how many people with communication needs are struggling to get their wishes across and as you said the bar is so low but is it still kind of being facilitated in the right way you know yeah, absolutely. I think actually the, the main barrier, in my in my opinion, is we're not even having the conversation. We are jumping to capacity, sexual capacity assessments because something is already happening that people are maybe, and then there's reason to doubt capacity and there's probably some concern. But actually, a lot of the time, we're just not even talking about people's sexual needs and it goes under the radar. And, what, you know, I, I recently asked a 60-year-old woman, I said, how, how are things since the brain injury? And she just burst into tears and nobody had asked her in the two years since the injury. And she said, it's terrible. Physically, it's the same, but we're just not having any sex at all. And I'm worried it's going to leave me. And her, in the end, my opinion was it was depression post-injury meant she'd reduced her sexual desire. These are all very common things, but it just, she was so embarrassed about the whole thing and she was so terrified. This was a huge area of rehab need, um, but nobody had thought to ask her. Mm-hmm. So we don't all, you know, do we ask the 70-year-old? Do we ask the, you know, do we ask females, males? Uh, a, a male neuropsychology colleague um, said a while back, he said he doesn't always ask young females these things because he doesn't want to be seen as inappropriate. But actually, he'll happily ask her about her urine, her bowels, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And actually, this has gotten, you know, again, we're so used to asking as psychologists about suicidal thoughts, but this is an area we think we can't sometimes go. And we can, we really can. We can ask permission we can say is it okay if I ask you about this it can be affected by brain injury so asking permission questions can be really nice Mm -hmm. introductions setting it in when we're asking about physical health in general but I think that's a great thing that you know speech and language therapists all of us can ask about because actually sometimes nobody is asking about this and maybe we do need to ask about it because if we're waiting for capacity to come up we've maybe missed a long period of time when there's been a rehab need and this is a huge area of rehab for many people brain injury where there might be something going on in this person's life because in the acute stages no one's thinking 
probably no one's thinking about sex when you've just nearly died. But actually, our clients are often in rehab for a year, two years, maybe for life. At what point do we start having this conversation? You know, at what point does either physical intimacy, relationships start mattering? And it's a really important part of most people's lives. But it just never becomes the thing to talk about so I think it is something to maybe think about bringing up with your clients and think I just realized we've never talked about this mm-hmm. can I just check with you physically everything okay okay physically it's okay but actually you know come, come. you know we know that people's ability to communicate in many ways changes their ability to read their partner's emotions if they can't pick up that their partner's frustrated and they don't respond and the partner then feels unsupported those things have a knock-on effect on intimacy um, you know, so it's it's huge, and yet we don't always have that discussion. So I would encourage you to all go forth and ask your clients about their sexual needs, their well-being, their relationship needs, and just open the door to that conversation. That may or may not lead to capacity as well. Who knows? But it's a good thing to talk about. You saying that actually does remind me. I felt like I was being brave um, a few months ago now, but I remember going out to see. Um, to see it, see a patient, and the partner was always there at the appointments as well, and they were not having a great time. The individual had really poor kind of initiation for for conversation as well as for tasks, you know, across the board and quite flat in in their affect, and um, the partner was kind of at the end of their tether, um, and I said, you know, and can I can I ask how are things physically, and um, they said, oh, awful. Um, and it was, and I was of course thinking, what am I going to say next to this? You know, um, but I just felt like I actually kind of had to have that, I had to bring that up because they were a young couple um, who had been talking about marriage pre-injury, and you know, I kind of made an assumption that that might have been an aspect of their relationship. And I was thinking, is this me as a speech therapist? Should I be asking this? But at the same time, I thought, no one else is going to. And it is a big thing. (laughs) Yeah. no training in this whatsoever no. and, um, and I kind of just began thinking no one else is talking about this and then I was in a room with people and the medics told me well we assume the psychologist asks and the psychologist said well we assume the medics ask and I just think it doesn't matter just get on with it mm-hmm. <laughs> because actually sometimes it also, we know it's like mood and so on we know it we need to sometimes have different people asking things it might be you that the client's comfortable with to talk to about it yeah. So it might, it doesn't really matter who in a rehab team has that conversation, as long as someone is having that conversation and having that conversation over time, because it might not be an immediate problem. But as we know, relationships, post brain injuries can shift over time. You know, we might need to revisit it as we do other areas. Um, because it, it it's worth having that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so interesting to bring it up, and I could see the look of relief on the partner's face uh, to kind of go, okay, actually, we can kind of confront this because they'd they'd not been talking about it, um, and it did to me. It felt like it did feed into the whole poor communication that was going on between them because because uh, the the person with the brain injury was just not recognizing the emotional needs of their partner um, and exactly as you said you know if that feeds into the sexual intimacy and everything you know if you've not got that day-to-day you know holding someone's hand or offering comfort when they're stressed after a long day at work or whatever that you would hope 
someone would offer, mm. then everything else wasn't falling into to place. So it might not be about relationship therapy. It, mm-hmm. Actually, this could be hugely speech and language because it might all be cognitive, you know, social cognition. They're right. misreading people and they're not yeah. responding. And not, you know, it might just be that very typical brain injury type mm-hmm. intervention that we see in their daily interactions, but in an area we're just not targeting yeah. in the relationship. So it doesn't. Sometimes when people talk about sexual needs, they might, well, the date, again, or maybe a trap is thinking what well, might be physical or it might be relationship therapy. And actually, I see far less of those and much more around social cognition mm. all the time. And I think that's where collaborating with, for me, with speech and language is fantastic. Right? Let's get an assessment. Can they recognise this? And they not? Is it that they don't? Is it a lack of empathy that they just don't? You know, they're just not caring anymore about their partner. Are they prioritising their own needs? You know, that can really come into it as well. Is it about problem solving and planning, and they can't think through and you know think we need to make time for each other now? So actually, I find time and time again this comes back to the basic foundation things that we do in rehab. Just an area we don't always necessarily think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't really give permission for that to be talked about, you know, where it's still very taboo, you know. So hopefully we're moving forward from that. Um when I when I started in my service I had the the privilege of working under a very experienced speech and language therapist and she was from New Zealand and I remember her talking to me about a person that she was working with who had dysarthria and that his communication goal was to be able to phone and um, order a sex worker to come Uh and I thought fantastic you know haven't ever done that myself yet but you know I think because we're not we're not asking the question so Yeah. And it's probably a lot more motivating, Jan, than a goal of to speak a five-word sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or order a coffee. Yes. I, that's yes. not as interesting. Uh-huh. These things can be smart goals. One of our clients recently turned around when we said, what's your goal? She went, I want strippers. <laughs> and we were, and this is a young 21-year-old woman, and we were like, fantastic, executive skills. This is a woman who'd been lying on the sofa all day before admission. Great, you need to organise it. You need to think about the money. You'll need to speak to your lawyer to get funding for this. You need to talk to the staff to see who'll go. She did try and invite the entire unit along as well. You know, we had to put some constraints. But this was a fantastic interdisciplinary goal for her to work on. Um, And it was an awful lot more motivating than how am I going to get you off the sofa? Do you want to go to Tesco's? No, she doesn't. So it... You know, these things can absolutely be rehab goals. Mm-hmm. Um, they make they can make fantastic rehab goals. What what we sometimes need to break down to meet meet our relationship needs. You know, it might be you know as basic as I, I need to text my wife every day, and and that structuring to put in that con- initiation of contact. You know, because one client just wasn't ever initiating the contact, and the, and the wife hated it. So these are just basic rehab goals, really, aren't they? And I definitely think that is absolutely something that speech and language therapists should feel confident in approaching, you know, because that is essentially with the person that I was talking about earlier, that what we ended up doing was kind of generating a bit of some situations that might happen around, you know, how do you spot when your partner is exhausted about having to sort the tax returns for the their business at the end of the year and so what could be options that you do do you know and instead of saying oh are you stressed is there anything I can do it was turning it into oh you've had a long day how about I make you a cup of tea and just even that 
kind of acknowledgement of seeing someone else's emotions made such a difference to the partner and then if it gets to a point where maybe a sexual relationship restarts people feel more connected connected. yeah yeah yeah. um and definitely if you're a speech therapist listening to this and you're thinking oh how do i go about it like you say you just have you just give it a go and ask for permission yeah yeah i really like that permission question yeah Linking it in, we you know we often ask about other physical health needs, don't we? Mm-hmm. So you can link it in and say, you know, the brain affects everything. You know, is it okay if I ask about your physical health, like your you know your bladder, your urine, your sexual function? Would that be all right? I've never had anyone say no, mm-hmm. and I've never had a bad reaction ever to asking this. People just say it's all fine, or actually. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that if you were maybe at a medical appointment and someone asked something about your physical health, you'd just probably reply. Um, So it generally goes okay. (laughs) And it's usually that I think the more we ask, the more confident we get in asking these Mm -hmm. questions as well. So probably say just give it a go Mm -hmm. and see what happens. And then quite often you'll find the skills you're using in other areas just come to the forefront. It you know, again people get nervous, they say, Well, isn't it more for GP? And this and I say, Well, yes, if they come back and say it's a physical problem, like an erectile dysfunction, absolutely we refer to the GP. I'm not going near that. But it might be they wouldn't have gone to the GP had had I not brought it up. You know, and maybe they can't find the, they can't communicate with the GP. That might not be a conversation. It might be again a speech and language therapist who helps them, you know, find ways of communicating that message. So we can still we can stay within our skill set, but our skill set in rehab is about problem solving and breaking problems down into small steps and helping people achieve them. In the same way, no one trained us to help a, an electrician get back to work, but we don't bat an eyelid, do we, about helping that person talk to their employer or communicate or email. We go, yeah, we can do that. It's exactly the same for people's relationship needs of thinking, well, what's going wrong and what can we do to help build the skills? And that's something that, you know, again, the speech and language team is really good at doing, assessing what's the underlying problem, what's the goal, what what might help them move on in this problem and, and help them achieve what they want. Um, it and, works pretty well. Yeah, and I think for your situation, you know, Helen, you're often maybe the only clinician who's having contact with people. But even in my situation, I might be the only person, only clinician in the service who's regularly seeing someone just for just to, you know, provide some conversational input. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, we are we are capable of Mm -hmm. having these difficult conversations. So Mm -hmm. we should be encouraged and be brave. I think it's interesting. So often as we're talking, what's going through my head is you get lots of training on how to approach if you're worried about someone's mental health and if you think they might be suicidal. And I think more and more healthcare professionals are feeling able to bring that up. And a lot of it is around just ask the question. People aren't going to be... You know, they're not going to react badly to being asked that question. They're either going to be relieved that someone's asked them or they're going to say, no, that's not a problem. And I kind of feel there's parallels with that. It's actually the example I used to teach because I say, isn't it interesting that most people in this room feel comfortable asking about suicidal thoughts, but not about people's relationship? You know, it's it's coming from us, not the client with Mm -hmm. that. But I use the same approach. You know, again, with suicidal thoughts, we use a funnel approach. 
is this a problem? No, it's not. Fine, stop. Or they go, yes, I am having that. Okay, so have you got a plan? Have you got intent? What would stop you? We, we go further down that route, the more someone is kind of affirming that we need to go down that route. And the same is with sex and relationship. We can have the screening questionnaires. In the screening questions, in the same ways we ask about bladder, bowels, is this a problem? They go, no, fine, we move on. If it is a problem, oh, so which area is a problem? Tell me more about that. What is it that's hard? Okay, so that's hard. Right, well, now I need to see is it actually social cognition. I need to do some assessments here. Would that be okay? You know, so we can go further down that route or we go, oh, hang on, we need to go further down that route, but it's now shifted into the GP route or it's shifted to psychiatry. So we now know where to, you know, again, send it off in the same way we would do with suicidal thoughts. Something comes up that's acutely suicidal, we're supporting that client for the crisis team. Mm-hmm. We don't have to deal with it all. So it's very much the same approach I use for, for mental health questions as I would for sexual needs and, and all areas really of screening in and screening out and do I need to go further. One of the things that you mentioned before we can properly start recording was just about how low the bar is and you gave such a good example of, a, of an individual um, who was deemed to have capacity but when you kind of dug a little bit deeper it was quite interesting what you were saying around what that individual kind of was was actually able to not convey. <laughs> um, could you? I, I think our, our listeners would love to hear a bit more about sure. that. Yeah. So the legal bar for sexual uh, capacity for sexual relationships is fairly basic. You need to understand the mechanics, the risks, um, prevent and have knowledge of how to prevent the risk at a basic level. Like a condom can prevent HIV, for instance, and the idea of you and them consenting. So it's very basic. Um, and I was recently assessing a, a, young, a 40 year old woman um, and she has had many, many capacity assessments. There is evidence that the more capacity assessments one has, they start learning how to pass capacity assessments as well um, which is always worth bearing in mind Um, and she treated every single capacity assessment for years like a test she would revise and learn things by rote so she turned up with printed material and I'm going okay this is I need to look at this because if she can she could clearly sometimes not communicate her knowledge so when you gave her options she could then it could help her express things so it was really important that I use a variety of means because I know she can't always express herself but equally I had the other thing going on that she was learning by rote and writing things down and learning verbally by rote key phrases off the internet but didn't understand them so she was again she would talk about this whole and, and she just went into the spiel that sounded like rote learning so she just go off on one of what's you know what's the mechanics of sex and she would start saying well there's vaginal sex there's anal sex there's oral sex there's all sorts of sex you can get diseases and she would just go for it and yet when I showed her pictures and um, I highly recommend the build sexual capacity assessment booklet it's got a structured interview and it also comes with images a graphic uh, drawn images of uh, various bodies, sexual acts, gay couples, straight couples, uh, couples of mixed race or or, or straight, you know, huge range of options that are really useful in assessing sexual knowledge. When I gave her images to see what is her understanding when she's not rote reciting, so I I gave her one of um, vaginal penis sex, she could identify that, no problem. But I gave her ones of both anal sex and oral sex. She couldn't identify them. So she looked at anal sex and said, that's oral sex. And again, I gave her pictures of oral sex and I said, who's getting the pleasure there? And she couldn't identify the, the main person that was maybe being, pleasured, you know. So her understanding of what was actually happening in the scene was very impaired. 
but legally that's very ill-defined so I've then got someone who's incredibly borderline Mm-hmm. And actually, going back to the case law, they repeatedly refer to the sexual act, <laughs> and they talk at times about vaginal intercourse, and they're focusing on that. And I was like, "This is crazy," because if you ask most eighteen-year-olds what sex is, they're probably <coughs> ripped of things. You know, mm-hmm. sex is not just penis in vagina. You know, and yet, if I follow the legal case law, maybe that's the benchmark I'm going on. And that's what I had to come back to. And I sort of said, well, this is actually an incredibly borderline one. And interestingly, this woman was a Muslim. Um, so uh, in Islamic faith, uh, anal sex is forbidden and oral sex is is up for debate. Um, my understanding of Islamic guidance, and this, I'm saying this with, um, I'm not an expert in this, is that as long as there's no swallowing of sexual fluids, oral sex may be acceptable. How you avoid that, that's an interesting one, but never mind. Um, So she was saying that's not relevant to her. And I'm going, well, hang on, your partner may have different views. You might need to know what those sexual acts are to decline them. Um, But uh, do I need to give them less weight? And I decided I didn't. However, what it came back to is the law seems to focus on the basics of the sexual act. So if we're taking this in its most basic form, she understood that in sexual intercourse, a man's penis goes inside a woman. It releases sperm and a woman can get pregnant at that very basic level. And, and in, it was a very tough one. It's borderline. But in using that, I was looking at some of the other case law judgments. So there's been ones where uh, a person who thought mm-hmm. knew a woman could get pregnant, but believed they could only get pregnant if they were married, was deemed to have sexual capacity. So clearly the level of understanding required by the courts is very basic. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, things that you need to understand that contraception exists, you don't need to be able to use it. So you might be incapable of using contraception, but you just have this verbal knowledge. So looking at the other judgments, the the basis of general understanding seems to be very low. So in applying that, I said, this is very borderline. I'm very concerned that this woman has limited understanding. (coughs) However, if we apply a basic level, she grasps the basics. Um, but it was it was a tough one. But yeah, but that's where understanding. I think what's tricky for clinicians is nobody teaches us this stuff. Mm. They don't even teach us the basics of what sexual capacity, what you need to know. I, I tend to find that our NHS trusts they tend to say, well, capacity you assume it, you enable it, and then they need to weigh, they need to retain it, communicate it, understand. They say that that's the is that bit the base. I can see Jan and Helen nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Generally the fundamentals of capacity. They don't teach you how to actually assess capacity at all, but they also don't teach you what the legal requirements for the main decisions that we assess. And yes, there's obviously lots of decisions in the world, but the ones that come up time and time again are things like residence, care, discharge, um, sex, you know, those finance, you know, there's, there's certain decisions that come up a lot. And yet we don't get taught what those requirements are but we've got a duty to follow it mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really tricky to find that out and I do find that trying to follow the case law over time is really helpful to help me form those judgments because if you ask me just to do that assessment my natural inclination is to do a much higher bar <laughs> I think she should have an understanding of a broader range of sexual acts and yet on the case law I'm following that and trying to set my own views aside and my own worries about this hugely vulnerable woman very vulnerable however she grasps the basics yeah. and actually most of my worries were around her contact again so trying to separate out what what is capacity mm. for contact because she couldn't decide on a sexual partner but what's her understanding of the mechanical act and could she consent to that i think 
uh, a very frequently occurring situation as speech and language therapists is dysphagia and can pe- do people have the capacity to do this or do that and f- refuse recommendations and everything and I, I I've had a recent situation where I've you know had to really sort of say well even if the person lacks capacity um are we going to force feed them pureed food, you know? Um, and I used an example of a man we had at one point who had COPD. He was on oxygen. He was barely mobile, but he we he was smoking. Mm-hmm. And nobody, I mean, initially we were, it was all about, oh, but he can't smoke near the oxygen and everything. And I'm like, okay, but we got rid of the oxygen and we still smoked, you know, so... Smoking kills people, you know, <laughs> so, you know, and he lacked capacity and he had a serious medical condition, but we still facilitated him to smoke. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's kind of what's acceptable and what's Culturally, not. Yes. What yes. And risks teams will take will be very different depending yes. on the decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's an in, that one's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I know you know, like we were saying earlier, everyone's got their own values and things. But you know, with something like that, there's there's a generalized kind of safety issue there, isn't there? You know, particularly if you're in a setting with with oxygen or you know other people with other health conditions and things like that, that might be made worse. So it's it, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, Whereas, I guess, the sexual capacity, you know, at its core, we're talking, I don't want to say, we're talk, just talking about two people. Do you know, it might not might not be, no, no judgments out there about what anyone's choices are. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, but it's ultimately that individual's choices, if there's negative consequences, it's negative towards them. Um, you know, like you said, STDs, potential pregnancy and things like that. But um, we get so flustered about it. About it, but actually, the chances of those things are, you know, probably quite low. You know, because like you said, we all make choices about stuff that maybe aren't the wisest about things. Yeah, our clients have got the right to unwise decisions if yeah. they've got capacity. Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah. We yes. <clears throat> that um, we we all make poor decisions most mm-hmm. days of our life you know mm-hmm. that bar of chocolate that energy yeah. drink mm-hmm. yeah running that red light not that I did no of course not <laughs> none of us have ever made an unwise decision in all our days um yeah I think I know that um there's maybe a couple of speech therapists doing some doctoral work in, on sex and relationships and dating after brain injury from that kind of social cognition point of view and um, I think one of the examples I remember hearing one of them talking about was um, that they wanted to um, to to get sex workers. I'm, I'm really sorry, to listeners, if I'm not using the appropriate um, term. It's um, is, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good, good. Just in case I was getting the wrong thing. Um, but yeah, but the carers, the care staff were really not keen on facilitating that. But I think a lot of it was because they felt uncomfortable. Which is very interesting, isn't it? Because that's, again, are we preventing people's rights because someone's not keen? Yeah. You know, if you change that example around, 
the wee uproar. Yes. So people, just to clarify this point, it is legal for a sex worker to go into a care home if a client has capacity for that decision. And care home staff should not be preventing that access mm -hmm. as well. Um, it's not legal to have two at the same time. That technically classes you as a brothel. Um, but, <laughs> but a care worker going in to meet a client is absolutely fine. And you would obviously you need to bear in mind the rights of other residents. You know, this should be in someone's bedroom. It should be in private. Um, but it is absolutely fine for that to happen. You do need to be careful about not facilitating that. And it's really that's the complex area of the law at the moment around how much support can we give or not give. So anyone who's involved in care, actual care, cannot make a phone call to book or, or set it up. Mm. Um, my understanding is people not involved in care, day-to-day -day care can. Um, trying to clarify that at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's absolutely fine mm -hmm. for that to happen. It's not legal for sex on the street or, or for a brothel situation, but it is legal for any one of us to have a sex worker in our own home and since a care home is or a brain injury home, not a hospital, but you know, a long-term care facility is someone's home, it is legal in that setting as well. And actually, though there have been settings where people have been um, care settings where people have been taken to court because they've been preventing it, and it's said, well, that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, so we we shouldn't be preventing that, and we do need to think about our environments. What what setup have we got? Have we got single beds instead of double? You know, have we got people walking in without knocking? My goodness, that's widespread and drives me crazy. Uh, medical beds are not sexy. Uh, pressure mattresses <laughs> do not work. Do we need to hoist a client onto the floor before their, their partner, even though it might be their husband and wife coming around, but actually they want some time with them and the pressure mattress is not working. You know, we might need to help with some of that setup that's needed um so thinking about our environments um if there if the client wants a story being told about a sex worker coming around we need to all know that so we can go along with it um but there's lots of ways in communication and again these can be goals um if a client is being a bit disinhibited to a sex worker they're not going to proceed with that you know but it might be the initial goals are you need to not say xyz you need to be able to manage that before we'll even look at going further so there might be again hygiene goals i'm not even discussing that with you until you start showering daily mm -hmm. <laughs> you know these th there might be some basic needs that are, can be part of that um but the what might be worth mentioning there's a fantastic website and uh, organization called the tlc trust if your listeners haven't come across it uh, tender loving care and that was set up um, as a, a resource for it's a, like a directory of sex workers who only work with people who are disabled that's a sole area of speciality and they work with people generally work with people with any type of disability whether it's physical whether they've got stoma whether they need hoisting whether they can't communicate whether they've uh, got autism or brain injury huge range of things that they're highly experienced in supporting um, and what's really handy about that website is that anyone can go on they can look at what's on offer they can see the people in their local area or further afield they can see the prices that they're considering i find that quite useful with some clients simply having a look and he went I'm not paying 350 quid for that um, fine but that's actually he got supported and in looking into it and made his own decision on the back of that or at least could start saving up as well um, so that that can be a really useful uh, resource as well
I think um, just we'll, we'll come to a close shortly, but I've just got a couple of comments about a couple. Um, one is that when I first started in my service, I'd come from the community working with people with disabilities and it, it came over me all of a sudden that the people that we were working with, the only physical contact they got was either with personal care or through you know, I hate to say it, but having to be um, restrained if they were feel, being upset or anything, you know. So um, I thought, gee, you know, there was that campaign on social media of free hugs, you know. I thought, we need someone in the service who'll go around and give these big strapping lads, you know, some big hugs rather than what what I I thought about coming from a field of disability was... Often our people are demonstrating behaviours because they're seeking that input. So, you know, we have concerns. So, oh, if you know, if they become sexually active or whatever, then they'll be sexual towards other people. But I think it's actually the other way around, you know. People are often sexual because they want to be sexually active, you know. Um, and that if we fulfil that need, then we'll probably see less of what we might describe as problem behaviours, you know, or behaviours of concern. So, yeah, we, you know, physical contact is related to personal care and other negative things. And then, you know, um, seeking behaviours, we need to sort of acknowledge those. Yeah. I'll apologise, Kat. You maybe can hear my dog whining at, at this. <laughs> I can't actually. Oh, no, that's good. Well, maybe listeners can. So what apologies there, but like, what, what is are that? You seeking <laughs> <I don't> room? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in the edit. Though people yeah, might yeah. be kind of like, what, what was going on in the background there? That's the dog. <laughs> um, she's made an appearance in a previous episode, I think, as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, but no, I think that's a really, really valid point. And it's really got me thinking, like, I know we're saying, you know, there's that difference between inpatient setting and community setting. And I maybe am seeing people a little bit, maybe a little bit further down the line than yourself. But I just mean that they're in that post-acute stage. That's all I'm really meaning when I say that. Um, but, you know, I've got, you know, vast majority of my people are at home with husbands or wives or partners or whoever. Um, and I, I think it's sometimes a conversation that's being had, but it's definitely not happening consistently. I don't, I don't think. Um, and who are we having it with? Are we having the people that are displaying behaviour that's challenging and therefore mm-hmm. we're bringing it up mm-hmm. rather than looking at it with everyone and it's the people who yeah. might have an absence in their life you know, mm-hmm. but they're not. It's not that discussion's not being had. Mm-hmm. So it should be a topic we discuss with any client, not just the ones that are maybe being a bit sexually disinhibited mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Such a fascinating topic. Um, I feel like we've probably just only scratched the surface. I'm sure you could talk about There's a full conference day, first time ever, on sex and brain injury coming up in London very soon. Um, It's going to be fascinating. We've got stroke survivors uh, doing some burlesque displays. Uh, We've got sex workers are presenting as well um, from the TLC Trust. Um, and myself and Giles Yates are talking as well, so it's going to be a really interesting day. So if any any of your listeners are um, interested, it, that's coming up. Is it going to be hybrid or...? I don't believe so. I think it's okay. a personal day. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I've seen emails coming around about that, so I'll find that and make sure we get a link to to yeah. joining, the, you know, signing up for that. 
um, into the episode notes as well because I remember seeing that being advertised and thinking that was really interesting but I've used my CPD quota on the Cognitive Communication Symposium that's coming up so I'm not going to get to go on that one. Um, next one, Kat, next one yes. you'll be there flying the flag with yes. some personal experiences as well maybe. Yeah. Personal, professional experiences. Yes, I'm glad you, <laughs> you clarified that one there. We're not doing any burlesque. <laughs> um, and yeah, well, on that note, yes. there's an image for, for people to have in their heads. Um, but yeah, is there anything else, Kat, that you think that we've not covered that you're like, really hoping? It's a huge topic. It's just yeah. nice to get the conversation going and uh-huh. I think just go for it. Something is better than nothing mm-hmm. and you'll probably do an awful lot better than you think if you're wondering about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if anyone's got questions, feel free to email me. Jan's got my details. Are you happy um, for us to put them in the, the notes for the podcast? Sure, Your email absolutely. address? Okay. Yeah, oh, yes. it's... it's at yorkshireneuropsychology.com if anyone does want to get in touch and ask anything. Hi, it's Helen here with just a final note. Um, to mention that the conference that Kat mentioned um, on sex and brain injury has happened at the start of June, I think it was, um, in the time since we initially recorded the conversation. However, if you are interested in accessing the um, presentations and the topics covered, um, it was recorded and is available online at a cost of £175 plus VAT. I believe that there's a discount for NHS services, however, and charities. So if you're interested in accessing it, head to the ABI Solutions website, which I'll put a link in the show notes but it is www.abisolutions.org.uk. Thanks very much and see you next time. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are of the individual and should not be considered professional advice. If you have a brain injury, suspect you have a brain injury, or think someone you know has a brain injury, please seek dedicated professional advice.